0: Luke chapter 4, last week we looked at Jesus tested, this week we're going to look at Jesus rejected, something that's going to become all too familiar from here on out in his life. You guys know the drill, you guys sit for my words, but we stand for the very words of God, so let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his words of grace that came from his lips. Wow, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, (laughs) being a good pastor, not being done yet, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do in your own hometown what you have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, I wanted to start with a little bit of biblical background this morning. Uh, Jesus returns to Galilee. He has probably, if you take John's account into this, gone from the Jordan River up into Jerusalem, had a nice talk there with Nicodemus, then makes his way where few Jews would travel through Samaria and has um, an encounter with a woman at the well. Then he makes it back to Capernaum and throughout Galilee. And his ministry now is being unleashed. Um, And now he comes to his hometown, Nazareth. First of all, I just want to say what is the significance of Jesus returning to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why not Jerusalem? Why Galilee? Theologically speaking, why Galilee? Biblically speaking, why Galilee? Anybody know? Okay, um, let me see if this PowerPoint made it this week. Hey, sweet. Okay, that's Galilee. Okay? And I don't know if you can brighten it up a little bit, but if you can't, do you see some of the words there in blue? You see the word Zebulun where I'm pointing down there? Okay, that's, that's the tribe of Zebulun. You know what's right in the heart of Zebulun? Nazareth. Go up towards the Sea of Galilee to the right. And you see that word Naphtali? That's the tribe of Naphtali. You know what's right in the heart of Naphtali? Capernaum. So his hometown is in Zebulun, and then what he makes his ministry headquarters is Naphtali. Well, what's the significance of that? Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. God humbled those places. Those places were taken over by Assyrians. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the time Isaiah is writing, it's already become Gentilized. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's where the light's going to come. For to us a son is born, a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace. And he will reign on David's throne, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Isaiah 9 says, that's why it has to be Galilee. That's why it's Nazareth and Capernaum. Okay, I don't even assume that you even... Needed to hear that, but I wanted to teach it, so. (laughs) Other thing I want to put out in terms of background, that there's a distinction between a Galilean and a Judean. Both are Jews, but they are very different. And I'll quickly sum it up this way. The first returnees, after all the, the, the Jews are expelled out of the land... Hundreds of years before Jesus. There are returnees 500 years before Jesus from Babylon to do what? To go to Jerusalem to do what? Think Nehemiah and and Ezra. Rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, but namely the temple. Okay, so that's where they come. However, hundreds of years after that, there's this 100-year period. It's just about a generation or two before Jesus. Where Israel, for the first time since the exile, they've become an independent state. Just like today. And just like today, where Jews from all over the world are returning back to Israel. Same thing happens just a, a couple of generations before Jesus. But this time, rather than most of them settling into Jerusalem and Judea... Most of them come back to Galilee and start forming towns like Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin. Okay, now the reason I'm telling you is this. Judeans are the old guard. I mean, they came back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That temple became their baby with all its priests, its sacrifices, its pomp and circumstance. But the Galileans, they are these more recent returnees, they're kind of the newbies, and they learned to worship God without a temple, because they didn't have a temple, and so to them, the Torah, or God's word, replaced the temple. This became the Holy of Holies. And it became the synagogue where they went to worship, as opposed to the temple, Now, another thing about these Galileans, these guys were fiery. They were passionate for Torah. In fact, Galilee becomes a hotbed of rabbis with their disciples. It's a people are devoted to knowing Torah so they can live Torah, so they can teach Torah, so they can pray Torah and one day die Torah. So there's a difference between um, Galilee. In fact, Galilee itself is... Is, is different in that Judea, Jerusalem, is isolated. It's off the beaten path. It's tucked away in the mountains. It's closed off to the world. It's, it's, it's sheltered. It's, it's what my son Gabe right now is complaining about, at being a Christian college. He's like, Dad, this place is a, just a bubble. I'm like, yeah, it is, isn't it? I like it that you can kind of see that. Galilee, on the other hand... Is, is open. In fact, Rome's major highway runs right through it. I want to show you some powerpoints of kind of where we are in the text. Some pictures. I don't know if there's anyone back there, okay? This is me standing on what's called the, the Mount of Precipice. A cliff right near Nazareth. <laughs> I'm pointing... To the east. What we're looking out on is the Jezreel Valley. What's right in front of me is Nazareth. What I want you to see is that road right there. Do you see it? Because that road mimics the ancient road where Romans, soldiers, all the nations of the world would travel with all their culture, ideas, goods, I'm showing you this to, to show you how close Nazareth is to being in touch with the world. Because so many Christians think Nazareth is this backwoods, out of touch, poor little community. Uh-uh. The other thing that's right before me, or us as we're standing there, is the whole story of Elijah and Elisha. Over this way is Mount Carmel. In fact, you have another picture. Mount Carmel is right there. There's the Jezreel Valley. Look how plush it is. Uh, the other picture. Um, actually, that's Mount Car- uh, Carmel out there. Um, the, there you see the road and all of that. But the whole Elijah Elisha story is right before your eyes. I just think of Jesus growing up and just instead of playing cowboys and Indians. He and John the Baptist are probably playing, hey, let's play Elijah and Elisha. You know? Now, think about this. What part of the system did Jesus plug himself into? Think about it. He could have been a king in Jerusalem, Herod. He could have plugged himself in there. He could have been the high priest in the temple. He could have plugged himself into that. Instead, he plugs himself into the system of being a rabbi with disciples. And the place he does it is Galilee. He's a Galilean. Eleven of his twelve disciples are Galileans. Which means these guys are not backwoods. And they know the word, the Torah. They've been trained on it from the time they were kids. And they have a fire in their gut to know it. And to live it. We need to know that. Because that sets the context now for today. Look at verse 15. Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He's in Galilee. Synagogue's the main deal. Verse sixteen, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. This is what they did every single Lord's Day, is they went to synagogue. Nazareth, his hometown, here he comes. By the way, does anyone know what Nazareth means? It's the word netzer in Hebrew. Anyone? It means branch. So, Nazareth is, is, is branch town or branchville. It's, it's, it's based on Isaiah 11, which is a messianic text. Such a messianic text. A branch will come out from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's David's dad, and, and the roots. And from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on this branch. A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of counsel, a spirit of knowledge. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And and, and if you want to know what this says about this king to come and his kingdom, it says, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all Goy, all Gentiles, all peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place will be glorious. So I don't know, like, why did they name the town Nazareth? Well, at a minimum, they're priding themselves on being descendants of Jesse, descendants of David. But maybe they're thinking, hey, as descendants of David, maybe we're the branch. Maybe Messiah will come from us. I don't know. But let me ask this question. Jesus is coming home. You think the place was packed that day? Yeshua, Ben Yosef, he's coming. Can you believe it? Now notice verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Here's the custom. And this custom goes all the way back, well before Jesus' time. First, you, you, you stand up and you read a passage from Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Then you would also read a second text from what's called the half Torah, which would be from the writings or the prophets. I don't know if this was already um, established, this reading schedule, so it was assigned to Jesus, or whether he just took the liberty to say, I'm going here to Isaiah 61. Ooh, I just gave it away. I was just going to ask you, what text did he read? (laughs) Did you already knew that though, right? He finds this text, reads it, And his sermon is this. Today, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what they just heard Jesus say is this. I'm the Messiah. Which means the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And does anyone know what Isaiah 61 is about? Like, what what is the promise of Isaiah 61 in specifics? It's about jubilee. Do you guys remember jubilee? Jubilee is the ultimate Sabbath. Sabbath to us is kind of a bad thing. But Sabbath for a Jew is the closest thing to heaven on earth. Because Sabbath to them means rest. It means to cease. For six days we are to be like our Creator, and that we build things and produce things and develop things and we rule and subdue the earth. But the seventh day of the week is a day where we cease and we rest and we enjoy our God. And God not only loves Sabbath day, but he loved Sabbath year. He he applied a seventh year, a whole year of ceasing, of resting. Allowing the ground to rest. Even the animals to rest. On top of that, God wasn't done. He says, then there's the seventh, seventh year. The fiftieth year. Which was called, what? Jubilee. What happens on Jubilee? Three amazing things. Just imagine this. Number one, it's the year of release. All slaves set free. Second of all, it's a year of return. Everyone got to return to the land that was originally their families. It's like hitting the reset button every 50 years, it's like wiping the slate completely clean. It was also a year of forgiveness. All debts, all debts were forgiven. And this is why this is called a year, not just the Lord's day as Sabbath is. This is the Lord's year. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Who is this good news to? This is good news to the poor. This is good news to the oppressed. This is good news to the slave. This is good news to the outcast. And Jesus... Claims this text and says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year, the year of Jubilee. And then he stands up and says, Today this text is fulfilled in your hearing. And what's their response? Stone them. Uh uh-uh. uh. Look at the text, verse 22. They love it they love what they just heard they're actually marveling at jesus sermon i'm like wow he just said one sentence basically read a text and said one sentence they're marveling over it what are they marveling over first of all the stunning pronouncement that jesus just made he is messiah the messiah has come They also see something Jesus did when he's reading this text from Isaiah. And I think we don't know the text well enough because I don't think we notice what Jesus did. Is is there anything strange about what Jesus did? Listen, this is Galilee. These people know the text backwards and forwards, especially a text like Isaiah 61. And see, what Jesus just did is he read it wrong. And some people say, well, Luke just recorded it wrong. That's not what's going on here. Jesus inserts a clause that doesn't exist in Isaiah 61. It's the clause to release the oppressed. And what he's doing there is he's making use of a common teaching technique used by the rabbis known as Gezerah Shavah. Gezerah Shavah is when. You see a word that's used two or three times in scripture. It's a unique word and you then see it here and here and you put those two texts together. Jesus does it all the time. Uh, He does it with the Hebrew word ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta is only used two times in the Bible. It's this unique uh, command form of the word love. So in Deuteronomy 6, it says, "Ve'ahafta, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then in Exodus 19, verse 18, you have it used again. Ve'ahavta, this time it's you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus puts those two together and says, this is the greatest commandment. He does it all the time. And he's doing it here again. This clause, the year acceptable to the Lord, or the year of the Lord's favor, there's only one other time where that clause is used in the whole scripture. It's Isaiah 58, verse 5. Come on, don't you want to go there? (laughs) And see, the context of Isaiah 58, I mean, God's saying to Israel, he's saying, look, Israel, I don't really care about your fasts. Your fasts have become like this man-made religion. It's it's really nothing to me. And then God says, if if you want to please me, you're going to do this. He says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Isn't it to loose the chains of injustice? And here it is, to set the oppressed free. To break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them? And he says, if you do away with this yoke of oppression, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday and the Lord will shepherd you always and he will satisfy you And you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repair of broken walls. Restorer of streets and dwellings. God's never been a big fan of religion. Religion which is man-made instead of God-instructed. There's not one command in the scriptures to fast other than on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But there is command after command after command about God saying, Would you please take care of the widow and the poor and the stranger and the least? You stop making this all about you? Or it's just me and God, God and me, and my private spirituality. So really, in effect, what God is saying to them about fasting, it's almost like he's saying, jump in front of a car for all I care about. (laughs) He's like, that's not what I care about. That's your thing. My thing is that you would tangibly care for the least of these. And see, it's through this technique of Gezerah Sheva that Jesus just colored in the kingdom of heaven of which he is the Messiah to unleash. It's, it's not just Isaiah 61, but he says let's also pull into it Isaiah 58 to show that the kingdom of heaven, in fact both these texts, both have this hope of the rebuilding of ancient ruins, the restoration of streets and dwellings, and the renewal of things that are devastated. When I read a a text like this, I'm reminded of the fact of what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is so much more than just the saving of a few souls. Jesus is taking this text and saying, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is? The kingdom of heaven is jubilee. It's debts being forgiven. It's the slates being wiped clean. It's... It's Tikkun Olam. It's God fixing and restoring and raising up and repairing things that are broken. A a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. It's massive. And this is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. It's, It's the gospel of the kingdom that he unleashed. It's God bringing shalom to chaos. In fact, in the Jewish mind, especially at this time, the biblical precedent of the kingdom is really seen in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Because in their ministry, we see that the lepers are healed, the blind are given sight, the poor have good news preached to them, the dead are raised. So they believe that when Messiah comes, that's what it would look like. In fact, do you remember John the Baptist's question in Matthew 11? He says, are you the one, Jesus? And Jesus answers him. He says, yep. Don't you see, John? The blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. The poor of the gospel preach to them. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is. Which means... That when the kingdom of heaven is breaking in today, when his spirit is being poured out, it's about so much more than people just getting the right information. It's about Dave Dietz. There's a jubilee quality to it. kun Olam. God is taking what is broken and he's fixing it. And he turns it all upside down. It's transformation at the deepest level. After Jesus preached this, this sermon, they, they didn't say, kill him. They spoke well of him. They're amazed at his words. They loved it. This is Joseph's son. He's one of us. And what's Jesus take away from all that? They don't get it, they don't really understand the gospel of the kingdom. Why does he think that? They like his sermon. (laughs) Great sermon, pastor. Here's the deal. If you've never been offended by the gospel of the kingdom of God, you're probably not really hearing it. The gospel has an incredible offensive quality to it. I mean, what is it that these Nazarenes didn't understand? Basically, what they didn't understand is who the gospel's for. See, as people from Nazareth, they just automatically think it's for them. It's especially for them. I mean, we are Nazareth. We're God's special people. We're descendants of David. We're the good people in the world. We're the ones who go to synagogue. We're the ones who know God. I mean, they're just automatically thinking Of course the kingdom of heaven is for us, that the gospel is for us, that Messiah is going to be for us, even one of us. And see, it's at this point that Jesus steps up, and I see a fire in his eyes, and he say, and you you would say to me, do a miracle here like you did at Capernaum. And I hear someone raising their hand saying, yes, Jesus, do it. Jesus more or less tells him, "The Kingdom of Heaven isn't for people like you. I didn't come for people like you. I came to proclaim good news to the poor. And then Jesus describes the kind of people He is sent to. It's the poor. And who are the poor? See, if we don't understand the poor, we're, we're, we're never going to really understand Jesus and his mission. Look at verses 25 through 27. He says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe ha- famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah did not, was not sent to any of them but only to a widow, a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus gives two examples of the kind of people he is sent to. One is a Sidonian widow, and another is Naaman, who would be the equivalent today of being a general of ISIS. (laughs) First thing we have to see is that they're both Gentiles. Gentiles. And to a Jew, Gentiles are outcasts. They're unclean. This is infuriating to them. They stopped and continue to this day for the most part to stop with this idea that God blesses us. And it stops there. We're God's chosen. We're God's redeemed. And it stops there. They don't understand. They've been blessed to be a blessing. They've been redeemed to partner with God to bring redemption to the world. This infuriates them. A Gentile? But see, they also fit the Bible's definition of poor, this this Sidonian widow, Naaman. I mean, if you know the story, the Sidonian women, I mean, woman, you talk about poor. If you know the story, Elijah comes to her and says, I'm hungry, I need a meal. She doesn't even know where her next meal's coming from. Then there's Naaman. Now, what's interesting about this example is Naaman is, according to the story, he's, he's rich, he's famous, he's known throughout the world, he's second in command, he's a celebrity. So already we should be deducting that Jesus' definition of poor is is more than just one social economic standing see what makes this rich man poor, if you know the story, is this great man develops leprosy. And in that world, leprosy made a person an instant count outcast. I don't care how rich or famous you were. I don't care how much money you had. You had to live in a leper colony. You were now an Outcast. And see, this is why in the Bible, the poor is more than just a descriptor of someone's financial standing. It's a person in chaos. And I'll tell you, I know a lot of people with great means. And I look at their life, and their life is complete chaos. And so one of the takeaways, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm sent to the poor. I'm sent to those in chaos. I'm sent to the outcast. And I want you to see how far Jesus pushes this. Because it needs to offend us. In verse 26 and 27, I don't know why our NIV takes this little important word out, but it's in there. In verse 26, it says, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only a widow in Sidon. And in verse 27, it says, But Elisha was not sent to any of them, only Naaman, the Syrian. Only those who know they're spiritually poor, spiritual outcasts, utterly bankrupt before God, Jesus says, I am only sent to them. Are you hearing this? Do you know this? Do you believe this? His gospel is preached to the poor, that only the poor in spirit get the kingdom. Only the poor. Does this offend you? It should. See, and it's when they hear Jesus say this that now they say, let's kill him. It's not because he claims to be the Messiah. It's who he claims to have come for. And see, they are now feeling the offense of the gospel. Jesus is basically saying, and this is what they're hearing, I am not sent to people like you. People who just think automatically that they are okay, that they are good, who think they're entitled to God and his kingdom, who think they have so much to offer God in the end, Jesus, I'm not sent to you. Now, I think we're really quick to spiritualize all of this because I just did it myself. What did I turn poverty into? Spiritual poverty. What did I turn poor into? Being poor in spirit. Jesus does this too. One time he will say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But on another occasion he will just say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because here's the deal, at the end of the day, all that matters to God is our heart. And so spiritual poverty is the thing that he sees. But the poor, the literal poor, do have an advantage. Because the person in chaos understands what spiritual poverty looks like. That's why the Bible says it is a dangerous thing to be rich. And to live the good, comfortable life because the people who have things and the people who run things and the people who are in control of things have a hard time understanding what it really means to be poor in spirit. Jesus says, beware. I want us to think about this a little bit because we live in West Michigan and we have all the comforts of the world at our fingertips. And it's so easy for people who have all the, the world's comforts, who live lives of such privilege, to start developing this smug, self sufficient, condescending attitude. It's an attitude of entitlement. I'm good. My life is good. I'm okay. Oh, let's sprinkle a little Jesus on top. And even when we take it further where it's not just that we're good and okay, but everything that we are and everything that we have is because I worked for it. I deserve this. I'm entitled to it. And it's not long then before that attitude gets applied to our relationship with God where we just look at God and say, I'm good, I'm okay, I don't need anything. Oh, except for maybe a couple days a year. Do you know that story of the Sidonian widow? Elijah comes to her in need, in need of a meal. And you know what she says to Elijah? I have nothing. That's the Bible's definition of being poor in spirit. I have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. All I bring is my need. And here's the deal. If in your mind you think you come with something, you're not coming to God poor. And yet this widow that day goes away, and she goes God's way, and she trusts God with everything she has, and you see the kingdom of heaven breaks out into all of her poverty. It's beautiful. God gives her just enough every single day. And then there's Naaman, this famous celebrity general who's made a complete outcast because of his disease. And he comes to Elisha. He's desperate. I love Elisha in the story. Elisha's not enamored with celebrities. He doesn't even go out to meet him, but he sends his servant and says, tell, tell Naaman that all he needs to do is he needs to go down to the Jordan River, uh, strip naked, and, and bathe. Seven times. And Naaman, of course, at first is offended. It's like, how dare you ask a great man to do something so low? He wanted to do something great for God. He wanted to earn this this healing with God. But God, in effect, just says to Naaman, Naaman, if you're going to come seeking my kingdom, and you're going to be a part of what I'm about, you must come to me poor. Poor. Which means, Naaman, I must strip you. I must strip you of your uniform and all your medals and all your accomplishments of everything except your detestable leprosy. Can you do that, Naaman? And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because you see this once proud general who decides to go God's way. He takes his clothes off. He exposes his leprosy. And he bathes. And think about it. He does it again and again and again. Every single time he has to trust God. Every single time he has to remove those clothes. Show his his hideous disease. And it said when he came out of the water the seventh time, his his skin was like the skin of a baby. And the kingdom of heaven broke out in his life. And Jesus says, unless you humble yourselves and become poor, you're never going to enter my kingdom. It's because God at his heart, he loves poverty. Poverty is so at his heart. I mean, just think about how God even gives the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Look at verse 22. I say, isn't this Joseph's son? Think about that. Let that register in your soul. Heaven's son became Joseph's son. The one with everything at the very top who had it all was cast out. He was cast down. He went low. He emptied himself of everything because the way he's going to unleash the kingdom is by becoming poor, by entering the chaos and taking all the chaos upon himself. We do not get the kingdom by being born in Nazareth, by being born in Grand Rapids, by being raised in a Christian home, by going to church on Sunday, by going to a Christian school. We get it by becoming poor. And that's the offense of the gospel. And this is why, when you really understand the gospel, you will either pick up stones to stone Jesus, or you will fall at his feet. You will fall at his feet, as they showed us, and worship him. So, I'm going to end with this question. Have you gone God's way? Or I'll ask it from this angle Are you too proud to become poor? Too much attitude. An attitude can either come from the world stuff or it can come through all this religious stuff. (laughs) Two extremes. See, unless we truly understand ourselves like this Sidonian widow who says, Lord, I have nothing, or go the way of this Assyrian general who emptied himself of all of his stuff except his leprosy, we will never enter or experience the kingdom of heaven. That's the gospel. I have mikvah up here this morning. I don't want anyone coming up. Not today. I want you to get with the Lord today. Let God speak these questions to your heart. Have you truly become poor? Take it upon yourself. Find a place. And I'll tell you how. By their fruit, you'll know them. (laughs) By their fruit, by their fruit, by their fruit, you'll know them. Let's pray. God, we live in a context, a religious context and a worldly context where we need to beware. It's a difficult thing for us to see our poverty and to enter poverty of spirit. But this morning, God, I pray that you would give us the faith of the Sidonian widow, the faith of a Dave and Barb Dietz, the faith of a Naaman. So you could open the eyes of our heart, not just to see who you are and how awesome you are. Heaven's son became Joseph's son for our sake. But God, that you give us the eyes to see our own poverty. That there's nothing we bring to the table, there's nothing we bring to the equation, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to get you to like us. The gospel, the good news, is that you like us, and love us because you're good. And we just need to humble ourselves and fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do that work in our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just come forward. We're going to take an offering. What I'd love for you to do right now is just stay seated. Could you?